On this week's 51%, we speak with authors Jamie Victoria Ward and Tracy Robinson Wood about their new book, Sister Resisters, on how college faculty can better mentor black students on campus. Those conversations can open up paths to success that you never would have imagined. Also ahead of the 50th anniversary of Title IX, a new Marist poll takes a look at how Americans perceive the groundbreaking legislation, coming up on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on, I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh or Lita. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jesse King. Teachers across the country are saying goodbye to their students as the academic year wraps up. Today, we're going to talk about the importance of mentorship, specifically the importance of mentorship on college campuses. Of course, it's important to have someone to turn to, to look up to at any age. But college, or at least those college-aged years, are a very formative time in one's life. For a lot of people, it's a time for exposing yourself to new ideas and interests, meeting people of different backgrounds, getting that first taste of independence, and honestly finding out who you are. That's a lot for anyone to navigate alone. And as our guest today will tell us, black students and people of color face their own set of obstacles on college campuses. Janie Victoria Ward and Tracy Robinson Wood are the authors of Sister Resisters, Mentoring Black Women on Campus. Ward is Professor Emeritus of the Education and Africana Studies Departments at Simmons University in Boston, Massachusetts, while Robinson Wood is a licensed mental health counselor and professor of applied psychology at Northeastern University, also in Boston. The pair have long worked together on research regarding institutional racism, sexism, and the identity challenges faced by young people of color. Through their own experiences as college professors, they've seen firsthand the class bias and microaggressions that black students face, as well as the crucial role that mentors play in resistance. Robinson Wood says the goal of their book is to provide a model for college mentors, specifically white women, so that they can better support the students of color they serve. Janie and I had developed the theory of resistance back in 1991 that um, set the groundwork, I think, for this book that speaks to how black girls and women can optimally push back against the forces that are structural in nature that impact their lives. So the the gendered racism, classism, as well as other oppressions and and how to um, negotiate those historical and structural isms in a way that can allow the woman to still focus on her goals, but to be empowered in the process. So we also, though, as professors, were working in the academy and um, certainly seeing young Black women experience uh, difficulties around these isms. And disproportionately, the majority of mentors are white women. And um, so we begin to uh, see some of the challenges for both parties, uh, the mentors and the mentees. Um, And we also had to ask, where do women learn how to be effective mentors within a cross-racial context. And oftentimes they're not equipped to do so, not because they don't want to, but if you consider the question, where would they learn how to do this well, it's wanting. So we wanted to close the gap and provide some really good tools in an invitational uh, way that helps the mentors feel encouraged, uh, but also ready and competent and confident in the work that they've chosen to do. So when we're talking about mentors on academic campuses or in a college setting, like what roles are they usually filling and how important is having a mentor in those college years? 
Mentoring on college campuses occurs in a number of different ways. Sometimes there are formal programs where the dean may come to a department head and say, I'd like you to create a program or the department itself within a discipline might have its own ideas about how do you do pre-professional introductory work to get you know a young person ready for the professional world. A lot of times, however, mentoring is done more informally. Either young people may, uh, a college student may find her way into the office of a professor. Maybe it's somebody they've taken that class before, or they feel like they're connecting in some way. Some mentors are well-trained, but a lot of mentors are not. Um, They might've been introduced to the program in a, two-hour session, this is what we're going to do, this is what you've got to do, go do it, (laughs) right? And we have found that when it comes to mentoring relationships, one of the most important things that has to happen is the mentor has to be able to have open and honest conversations with the mentee about what they're doing and how things are going. That open, honest conversation when you're talking with a young black woman, means that you're gonna have to talk about race. You're gonna have to talk about sexism and racism and what that looks like for the life of a young black woman on a college campus and what it might look like in the future as she tries to navigate her professional life. And so how do you often see this academic support failing or falling short for students of color? I think the topic of race and racism is a difficult topic for people to have, especially I think white people to have. And as Jenny said, if you're going to work with the black mentee, having the ability to talk about race is critical. And yet we have to ask ourselves, where would white women who are the majority of the mentors on campus Where would they acquire the skills and the knowledge to have these difficult conversations? A lot of times white people have predominantly white social networks. They may not live around black people. They may have colleagues who are black, but may not. Those colleagues may not be friends. So people are not necessarily engaged in relationships of talking candidly honestly, and with trust. And that can create difficulties for the mentor to broach the topic with her Black mentee. At its simplest, your mentoring model has four steps. So read it, name it, oppose it, and replace it. Could you go into that a little bit more for me? I guess, like, what work should mentors be doing to help them get more comfortable with talking about race? So there's a model that that we have been following. The ability for the mentor to read isms of racism, but also other oppressions that include sexism, ableism, to be able to read it and to name it and to name it accurately, because sometimes the Black mentee needs to realize that it may not be racism. It could be the, the situation that they're experiencing, but it may not be. And, um, and this is a model that Janie created when she wrote a book 20 years ago called The Skin We're In. 
So the reading of the uh, racism, the naming, the opposing, and the replacing or replenishing. We believe stories are powerful. So the book is filled with case vignettes that we hope the reader can find herself in there. Because people go looking for themselves when they read. And we want our mentors to feel hopeful that this work is doable and relevant for their lives. You know, right now, I think that there's a lot of anger and frustration out there about the Karens and the Beckys among us. There are some very unflattering things that have been said about white women and white fragility and, and you know, sort of an inability to step up to the plate and speak and be heard in a way that women of color can listen. And we wanted to push that paradigm aside because in our experience, we have found a lot of white women who are professors, who are administrators, who are staff people, who have either done the work or are really interested in doing the work. You know, that's the group of women who we think can be really good sister resistors, meaning that white women can enter into that space where they are providing assistance to young black women who are trying to resist the isms in their lives. So one of the most important things that we think has to happen is for white women to become in touch with how those isms have shaped her life, right? And what kinds of resistance strategies has she come up with to be able to push back against bias and discrimination? Right. The more that white women are in touch with their own ability to navigate oppression makes them a little bit better able to listen to a young black woman and to help her to strategize in ways that are effective, efficient and within her control. And one of the important things that we want to communicate is that in traditional mentoring relationships, often it is assumed that the senior person has all the information and the junior person is the one who is sitting there taking it all in, right? And when it comes to race, we have found that often the tables get turned. And in this case, the junior person the college student may have an understanding of how race works in the United States, how it impacts your life, how it is infused in so many aspects of the institution that her senior mentor may not be aware of. So by shifting the balance in the mentoring relationship, we hope that mentors will be in a better situation, will be more open to listening to what the students are saying and learning from their articulation of how they see these patterns unfolding in their environment. So sometimes it's the student who has to teach the mentor how to see the environment 
for racism and sexism, for gendered racism, and then how to name that phenomenon, right? And once you name it, okay, now you got to do something about it, right? As Tracy had said, our third step in opposing it, that's when Black women say, okay, can't deal with this anymore. I've got to push back. I've got to stand up. I've got to say that, you know, I will not stand for this. And you can oppose in a lot of different ways. In the book, we give all sorts of examples of Black students opposing um, individually, or you could oppose collectively. You could get together with other students and go and speak to the dean about a problem. Or individually, you can start to think about, well, what do I need to do? What changes can I make in my life, in my behavior, that would make this situation a little <clears throat> bit better? And the mentor can be extraordinarily helpful there, right? And we give examples of mentors making great suggestions and mentors joining up with young Black women on campus in their oppositional activities. I mean, there's got to be probably cases where faculty might think, well, maybe a Black faculty person would be more prepared or suited to be a mentor towards a Black student. What would your response usually be to that? I think that that's a similar type of issue where therapists might say, well, maybe uh, this Black patient would be better suited to be matched with a Black therapist. And there are times when people want to certainly talk about race and feel that sense of similarity. And we feel that racism is everybody's responsibility and that we are all answerable to racism because otherwise we hand off to black people and to brown people issues of race so that race becomes the burden of black and brown people. That will not allow us as a nation and as a world to upend racism. And it's not consistent with what we know from civil rights, where we had, you know, white folks and Latinx people and indigenous people coming to the side of black folks saying, this is wrong. You mentioned earlier how like a majority of people who are in that sort of mentorship position are usually white women. Is there more schools can be doing on their end to, you know, be putting people of color in these positions where they would also be allowed to mentor people and have people see themselves in different positions? Well, you know, what often happens on predominantly white campuses is that uh, it's not that the faculty of color feel like they are not being invited in to mentor. Often it's the exact opposite. Students find their way into the offices of faculty of color staff of color, administrators of color. And as a result, those staff people and professionals find that they're doing double duty, right? Mm -hmm. They are um, teaching and doing their own research and, um, you know, holding down um, the administrative responsibilities that they have taken on. And they are dealing with students trying to navigate um, a confusing and often bias-filled situation. And, and it would be fabulous to hire more people of color in these institutions. And I hope that as we look to the future, um, that's going to happen. But in the meantime, we also have a lot of folks who are already there, right? 
in this case, we're talking about white women who have already decided that they want to step up to the plate and they want to be more effective in what they're doing. So how do we bring those women into the fold? How do we help them to become the kind of resistors that these young black women are used to, have been exposed to in their lives and have found power and um, sustenance um, in connecting to that long tradition of um, resistance that exists in the black community. How have you seen college campuses or I guess the college experience like change since your time as a college student? We started the book uh, in the very beginning of the book. We talk about our own experiences of mentoring. The truth is neither Tracy nor I really had mentors when we were coming along in college. Um, Personally, I graduated from college in the 1970s and mentoring at that point was really something that was reserved for men. Um, And it was often reserved for men in certain kinds of fields, like if you were going into business or industry or something like that. And I was in the arts. And being in the arts, I did not have access to the kinds of internships and the kinds of people that were in the field who could talk to me about, A, how competitive the field is. Um, I was in television and film production. And most importantly, how difficult it was going to be for a black woman like me to make it. At that point, there had been absolutely no black women who had ever produced or directed a full-length film in the United States, right? And so it would have been so helpful to have an adult sit down and say, you're going to be a first, you're going to be a trailblazer. These are the kinds of things that you're going to have to confront. These are the kinds of avenues that you're going to have to find on your own because they are not, it is not clear what your path is going to be. We recognize that today things are a little bit different. There are, as we've been talking, a lot more mentor, official mentoring programs that are out there, but there's still, there's still not enough people, white people, who are willing to talk openly and honestly about how difficult it's going to be for you just because of the skin you're in, just because you are a woman in um, a society that still undervalues women at every turn. But also, we we don't tend to think of senior people as needing mentors, and they could benefit too. <laughs> you know, because at any point in people's lives within that developmental arc, there are questions about what do I do now? Uh, which decisions should I make? Uh, a mentor can be very powerful in kind of using their own wisdom, experiences to help illuminate that path, which is what we want mentors to do to bring to the table all that you have to make a difference. Share your light and your wisdom uh, because you have it to offer. Because oftentimes I think women contend with like the imposter syndrome, questioning, you know, her own power. And, um, and that has implications for how she shows up with her mentee. Do you see this model working well in like other contexts as well in terms of like 
high schools or more like workplace-like scenarios? High schools uh, would be a wonderful space to talk about the power of mentoring. Um, young people are dealing with big questions about what options are available to me. The stakes are high for them as well. And so what would it mean for mentors to be able to hold space for young people to um, prepare um, and to talk about what can I do? What opportunities do I say yes to? Um, what are perhaps the consequences of um, going a particular route? Um, and because in high school, young people are dealing with racism and other sources of oppression. Um, and having to navigate that. So we definitely believe that this has real relevance for, for high school, as well as for boys and for other groups of color, um, because people, irrespective of your ethnicity or race, have to push back on some level at some point in their lives. It's a human experience. And so that's the beauty, I think, of this book that Janie and I have written is because we are talking about this shared human experience of having at times to call out inequity or injustice, trying to figure out what do I do? Which way do I go? Um, and so we focused on the college students, but we do see real relevance for high schools, for um, workplaces um, in general, where people are trying to uh, connect together, work together, but also navigate those difficult environments that racism and sexism and other forms of oppression bring about. Well, thank you both for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. That was all the questions that I have for you, but is there anything that I'm missing that you'd like our listeners to know? You know, I think that one of the most important things that we want all of the mentors out there to know that when you're doing cross-racial mentoring, um, one of the most important things to do is to listen with an open heart um, and to share your experiences with the young women and maybe young men that you were mentoring and your experiences around race, bias, um, discrimination, and um, you'd be surprised how those conversations can open up um, paths to success that um, you never would have imagined before you had the talk. Janie Victoria Ward and Tracy Robinson Wood are the authors of Sister Resisters, Mentoring Black Women on Campus. It's out now on Harvard Education Press. Janie and Tracy, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Thank so, you much. so much. Next week, we'll be focusing on the 50th anniversary of Title IX, the groundbreaking civil rights legislation that prohibits sex-based discrimination in schools that receive federal funding. Title IX applies to a wide range of issues students might face on campus and in the classroom, but it's perhaps best known for its impact on women's sports. 
That is, if you've heard of it at all. Earlier this month, the Marist poll released the results of a new survey conducted with the Marist Center for Sports Communication. According to the poll, 75% of Americans, including 78% of sports fans, credit Title IX with increasing the prominence of women's sports over the past few decades. But a good number of them needed to have the law explained to them first. Stephanie Calvano, Marist Director of Data Management and Technology, broke down the numbers. When given a brief explanation of Title IX, Americans' impressions are mostly positive about its impact on sports opportunities, especially when it comes to the growth of women's sports. While impressions of Title IX are generally favorable, one of the biggest surprises we found is that 43% of Americans, including 40% of sports fans, say they have never heard of Title IX. An additional 23% of adults nationally have heard of it, but don't have an impression on the legislation. Women at 25% are more likely than men at 20% to be unsure how to rate Title IX. Republicans and independents are more likely than Democrats to report they have not heard of Title IX. However, this does correlate with age as Democrats tend to trend younger um, and we see that younger generations are more familiar with the legislation. Calvano says younger generations are more likely to have heard of Title IX and believe it's had a positive impact on high school and college sports so far likely because they've experienced the impacts of the law firsthand. But has it done enough? Where does the future of Title IX rank in the court of public opinion? 48% of national adults say that change is needed. This includes 16% who think Title IX is not strong enough and a tougher law is needed, and 32% who feel the law is adequate but needs to be more strictly enforced. 24% of Americans say the law is sufficient and no change is needed, and 12% report that Title IX is no longer necessary and should be repealed. Calvano says among those with knowledge of the law, the poll found women and Democrats more likely to call for a tougher Title IX than men and Republicans. Of course, the way we even understand and define gender is changing. And over the past few years especially, it's become a political battlefront. So far, 18 states, many of them red states, have passed laws or rules restricting transgender women from participating in women's sports. In Texas, an order from Governor Greg Abbott directed the state to investigate parents of transgender children for child abuse. Calvano says, looking at the numbers, Americans are very much divided on gender. Next, we asked a couple questions about gender identity in sports. 51% of adults nationally, including 55% of those 45 or older, 57% of men, and 81% of Republicans, think that defining gender as the sex listed on a person's birth certificate is the only way to define male and female. 42% of Americans, including 49% of Gen Z millennials, 46% of women, and 68% of Democrats say this definition is out of date and should be updated to include gender identity. Calvano says when it comes to competitive sports, there's more of a consensus. 61% of Americans, including 68% of sports fans, say athletes should only be allowed to play on teams that match their gender assigned at birth. Younger generations, including 37% of Gen Z and millennials and 25% of Gen X, are more open to allowing athletes to play on teams that match their current gender identity. The Marist poll interviewed more than 1,100 adults during the month of May for the survey. Again, we'll have more on the impact and future of Title IX next week. Thanks for listening to 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. It's produced by me, Jesse King. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok, and our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. 
A big thanks to Jamie Victoria Ward and Tracy Robinson Wood for taking part in this week's episode. To learn more about our guests or just the show in general, check us out at wamcpodcast.org. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at 51% Radio. Let us know what you think and if you have a story you'd like to share as well. Until next week, thanks again for tuning in. I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every single girl. I was nobody else. I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half. He was a hollow laugh. And I lost my cool somewhere along the way. At night and on the hallway. I had to learn how to look away. I lost my cool. Sweet.